into us to just fall down with the Magi and worship. So let's look now at the word, looking at Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to here, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite things about my weekly schedule is that I have Mondays off. And as such, what that allows me to do is to go and pick up, my wife and I have four kids, um, and to pick up our youngest, Wit, our four-year-old, from preschool across the street. It's this great time because it's just one-on-one time with Wit. And it's a short walk, but there's no siblings kind of attacking me trying to get my presence. And I always ask them every time, Wit, how was your day at school today? Um, and this was back in either late November, or early December, and he looks at me and he's, you know, just all eyes behind his mask. And he's just like, Daddy, it was not a good day. I got in trouble. And I was just like, cool, probably got a sharply worded email from Miss Becca waiting on me in the inbox. Uh, said, ah, oh, buddy, what's the matter? What happened? It's like, well, we were singing a song. You know, and then I was just like, oh, no, what songs has his siblings taught him on Alexa that now the whole class does? I was like, oh, crap, this is going to get really bad really quick. And he's just like, oh, no, we're learning the song Joy to the World. I was like, oh, great song. I was like, what, what about it? He goes, well, I'm verse 2. I was like, okay, what's, what seems to be the problem? Wait, he goes, well, Miss Becca said that we have to sing in the mouse voice. And I'm just like, wait, I am not following. Like, are you talking Mickey Mouse? Like, what? what's going on? He's like, no, no, she says we have to sing quiet like a mouse. And, Dad, I really just want to sing loud like the lion. I just like soaked up that cuteness, right? It's just like, oh, and I encourage a little civil disobedience, like sing loud, buddy, it's okay. Um, You know, but like that sentence for months now has been haunting me, right? Because what it begs me to ask is, when's the last time I sang like a lion? Like when's the last time I have come and worshiped with every fiber of my being when we gather with the people of God? The question that haunts me is how often is this hour every Sunday work and duty instead of worship and delight. And it's with that question and that posture, the text invites us in to, want to, to question ourselves and say, what is it that's robbing you of true worship and joy? What is it that's hindering you from coming? And to see that this story that we know so well just invites us gently to come and worship at the feet of the Savior once again. 
I'm going to argue this morning two things, that the brilliance of Christ does a couple things to us. This brilliance of Christ first moves to burn away our prideful surety, our, our like either ranging from this like religious rightness and morality all the way to our cynical atheism, that, that Christ is always going to come and challenge us in what we believe and where we're trusting. But then to look and see how the brilliance of Christ invites us merely to lift our eyes and worship, to come and bask in the goodness and grace of our Savior, and to come just as we are to worship before the King, seeing how the gospel invites us and draws us in, in love. So again, the two points we're going to look at is how the brilliance of Christ burns away our prideful surety and then lifts our eyes to worship. Let's look at each of those in turn, starting with how Christ burns away our prideful surety. Anytime I come to a story, I love looking at biblical narratives because my favorite thing to do is to try and figure out where I am in the story. Like what, what character would I inhabit if I was in this story? Um, and one of my uh, more blunt seminary professors used to say, listen, if you're trying to envision yourself in the biblical story, never assume you're the hero of the story. You're always the one needing help. He's like, listen, you love the story of David and Goliath? Great. You're not David walking down finding the stones. You're the guy hiding behind the horses in the baggage claim, right? Like, that's who you are. You love the story of Esther? You're not the brave queen who goes and confronts the king. You're the one who's still in the harem, who's given up everything for idolatry. He's like, again and again, he's just like, listen, you're always the one needing help. You're not the hero. And yet when I come to this story, I can almost like not help myself. I'm just like, all right, but which magi am I, right? Like, it's just like, okay, cool. But like, I mean, frankincense seems a little exotic. I don't know how I feel about that. Gold, anybody, but myrrh. Let's be the magi of myrrh. That's who I would be. I'd have the coolest camel. It would be awesome, right? But the reality is where I actually find my heart in this story, where I'm most found in this story, is all the people that watch the magi walk by sitting in my own surety as they move towards the Savior. That's where I'm actually found in this story. Let's look and see how this story exposes that arrogance. Um, looking first at the, the religious right, those who were the good people of the day, who knew things about the faith, right? Um, I love the story how the Magi come and they come to Herod, the king of the Jews, and they're like, hey, Herod, can you tell us where the king was born? We want to go worship him, king of the Jews to Herod, king of the Jews. Like, this is an awkward interaction. Uh, they're just like, listen, we know you claim this, but we have word that the child was born. And what does Herod do, right? Like, it says, he's greatly troubled, and when he's troubled, all of Jerusalem is troubled. Like, like things are not well at home um, here. And where does Herod go in the midst of that uncertainty of, like, is someone coming to usurp my throne? He turns to the chief scribes and the Pharisees. He turns to them in verse four and says, and he's basically asking, is this a legitimate threat? Is this a threat to my kingdom and my throne? And their response in verse five is so interesting. Verses five and six, they respond. And it's almost like they're just like, yeah, duh, bro. Like we've had the book of Micah for a long time. We know he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. No big deal. And what's crazy to me is that verse seven isn't, and Herod takes the army to Bethlehem and destroys everyone, right? Like we see later he does something similar to that, but like he doesn't move immediately to try and snuff out the threat. Why? I think what the text shows us is how much that these chief priests and scribes, the, the like leaders of religion of the day, don't believe that this prophecy has any potency for their age and their time. They're saying, look, 
God's word and promises are either locked way back in the past with our forefathers or so far in the future that that's where we look to. God has no power in our everyday. They're declaring this reality that like God's words to be studied like a book, not to be believed in my everyday presence. They're not looking for the Messiah because they think that they know everything there is to know about him. They know where to look. They know when to look. They know how it'll be. And something we miss as modern readers is just how out of place the Magi are. Right, like we have the ideas, like I even referenced it earlier, from like Hallmark pictures and all the rest that like they come wearing kind of funky dress, they're definitely gonna be on camels, have treasure chests on the sides of the camels. Like we have an idea in our head of what they would look like and how they would stand out. But what we miss is how they stand out across the pages of scripture. Every other place that this term magi is used in scripture, it's used negatively. Every other place but this one. Why is that? We have to ask, who are these magi? Brothers and sisters, these are the idolaters that the, the prophets, Jesus, the disciples, everybody rails against. These are those who are coming to worship the stars. They are those pagans who don't believe in Yahweh, the God of the covenant people. Right? Like again and again across scripture, we see them being held up as an example of like, don't be like this. Worship the creator, not the creation. And yet in this instance, they're the heroes of the story. It's so incredibly interesting. And what's, what we see quite clearly is just this pride of the chief priests and the scribes. There's like, listen, Herod. First off, God's sleeping on us. Like his promises aren't for us. If you want something, go do it, and we'll support you, whatever. We just kind of give God lip service every Sunday, but he's not going to do anything. And if he was, he definitely wouldn't use these guys to point to the Messiah. He definitely wouldn't use these idolaters to show us where the Messiah was going to be born. And how often do we do that same move? How often do we say, listen, the promises of God were all good for David and for Paul, but he didn't seem to have much clout here in the 21st century. And if I want something, I'm just going to plan my way to it. I can get there by wealth or by knowing people or by networking. How often do we say, listen, I know the gospel's for everybody, but if you come to church, you better dress right and you better be nice and you better have your kids pretty quiet. Right? How often is this our posture where we're like, listen, we know that the gospel makes us ministers of reconciliation, but racism isn't something I need to address. That's really just something the media trumps up. God doesn't want me to actually engage in this at all. I'm just going to keep living how I want to live because I know what the Lord would want. How often again and again do we follow in the same footsteps of these chief priests and scribes saying, listen, I'm the expert on religion. Don't worry. I'll tell you what we need to do. Perhaps this morning you're not as brazen as that, but you still feel this feeling of just being ground down and having no hope and no joy in worship. I was talking to one of our, I'm a, I do youth ministry at our church, and I was talking to one of our students who's in college now, and he, he, he was sharing with me. He said, Clay, I'm just, I'm so tired of doing the right thing. Because I keep trying and God keeps feeling like he's silent, that he's not moving. 
He's not helping me. He's letting me just sit in this pain. I loved the honesty he brought to that conversation. It was so beautiful and raw and the ability to just name what we're feeling before the Lord. And I want to be very clear that like feeling defeated is not sinful, right? That's not sinful. But what I, what I talked to him about and what we have to be careful of is when we feel ground down and disillusioned, what is it we begin to believe? Where do we begin to put our hope? Where do we begin to put like our identity in? Because it's so easy when we're feeling ground down to say, listen, I know what's best for my life. I'm the one who can control my destiny. Yeah, God helped me in the past, but he's not helping me right now. And so he really doesn't have any room to speak into my heart, to challenge me at all. I'm the only one I can trust. Listen to how quickly when we feel ground down, we move into making ourselves God. And we see this so clearly in our text in Herod. Right in verse eight, as he's charging the Magi to go out, what he's really saying is like, listen, you go and figure it out and then come back and tell me so that I can determine if this is actually a legitimate threat or not. And then I'll handle it. Like he doesn't even barely like veil that he's like not actually going to worship, right? Like, like, like everyone reading this knows like worship is the farthest thing from this man's mind because what the Messiah represents is a threat to him and to his kingdom. And what's, what's so interesting is just how quickly we move to say, listen, the gospel's too small to deal with my world. I need to protect my kingdom at all costs. And so what we see is we're milling about in our arrogance and our pride of declaring, I know what's best in this present darkness, that God brings the light of the world into our midst. The savior of the nations, he's using that which is foolish to shame the wise. As a, excuse me, the prophet Habakkuk says, like he's doing a work in our time that we wouldn't believe even if he told us. He's saying, listen, you think you know all there is to know about the Christian faith, scribe and Pharisee? I'm going to use idolaters to point to the Messiah. And not just that, I'm going to use their idol to do it. I'm going to use their idol of that star to shine upon a piece of scripture that you've had for hundreds of years and treat like a comic book. He's saying, listen, you think you know what power is, that you can make it yourself? Like challenging Herod in particular in that like atheism piece. He's saying, I'm going to put them, I'm going to bring a part of the Godhead, the son of God into this world. I'm going to wrap him in flesh and put him in a manger as a baby. Saying, be careful what it is we're believing. To see how this brilliance of Christ exposes us exposes the ways in which we think we know everything. What he's asking us really clearly is, how far is our surety getting us? Right? Has that most recent purchase on Amazon made you feel fulfilled yet? Have the likes on Instagram make you feel beautiful yet? Have living this perfect, upright life made you feel good enough yet? Christ comes and exposes the many idols that we so often build our lives upon. But not only that, the light of this star also shows us the way forward. It also illuminates the footsteps of the Magi and invites us to follow them to see that the gospel not only confronts, it also comforts. It also moves towards us in hope and deep joy and love. So let's turn now and see how this brilliance of Christ lifts our eyes to worship. 
My wife, Lindsay, and I love to uh, like try lots of different cuisines. And one of our favorite things, we just like love to eat is Chinese food. And anytime that I'm in charge of ordering, it's a pretty easy order. It's just like, listen, we would like a lot of General Tao's chicken. And you can hold the, the veggies and the miso and the salad and just bring like a dump truck of fried rice, right? And we will eat all of it. And we're just going to like eat ourselves sick. Like it's so good. Um, and every time, literally every time, I, I always take at least one honorary bite of the egg roll. And I'm almost always disappointed. Like, yep, not worth it. Back to the fried rice, uh, right? Like, I want a spoon, not the chopstick, so I can get it in as fast as possible. Um, and the couple, this was, this was like a month ago now, a friend of mine who's Asian-American made me a homemade egg roll. And let me just tell you, my eyes have been opened. It was so good, like so good. And I took the first bite and I like looked at him. I was like, Alex, who knew? Like, like, are you kidding me? Like this thing is delicious, right? This thing that I've like for years just treated as like cardboard in a circular tube fashion. So like, this is incredible. And I think that's so often how we come to worship. It tastes just like blah in our mouths. It just tastes just like, all right, just something we do every Sunday. Let's just go and get it. What Matthew is really gently inviting us to is to see how incredibly beautiful worship is. How incredibly filling worship is. How much we can come and taste and see the goodness of the Lord in worship. And I think if I'm being honest, Sunday mornings are particularly filled with pitfalls for me. I spend so much of the Sunday morning wondering how I'm doing. Did I come up at the right time? Did I get all the notes right about what I'm supposed to be doing in liturgy and in worship? Am I speaking too fast? Am I speaking too slow? Did they like that story? Are they going to like my sermon? So often what I'm consumed by is how I am doing when I come into worship. Right now, we're, um, we're in a temporary building for our, our Sunday morning worship. We're renovating our our sanctuary and education building. And one of the things about being on a stage in this uh, school is we have to move the pulpit. It's on wheels. And it's my least favorite job every Sunday. Uh, and I don't have to do it every Sunday, praise Jesus. But like, it's on wheels. And so you have to wheel it over. You have to dodge the cords and get it over. And then there's this little, they like made like a landing strip that you're supposed to hit. And so everybody knows if you got it in the right place or not. And so you get it up there. But the worst part is if you have to push it forward because the wheels are about like halfway back. So when you push it forward, the whole thing tilts and it feels like you're going to ride it down like a surfboard. And like every time, like, Jesus, take the wheel, like, please just let me get this in its place. Right. Um, and like, like that's so much of what my heart is consumed by in this time that I call worship. Like, did you hear what was missing? It wasn't me being staggered by the word of God. It's not me being crushed by my sins. It's not me being overjoyed with the gospel. It's not me longing for the sacrament. It's not me basking in the benediction. It's me and my fears. It's me and my failures. It's me and my preferences. I love the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's this fictionalized account of this demon trying to tempt someone uh, and he's like going back and forth writing letters to his like uncle demon who's like better at it apparently. And, and he was just like, listen, if, if they go to church, you haven't lost. 
Just make the person in church think about that person's shoe who's squeaking two rows up. Just make them think about how one person is just a little bit off on key and how they're singing, and then you've won. So often what robs me of joy, what robs me of hope, what robs me of worship is me and the ways I get in the way of actually bringing forth my ideas of what it should be. What if we came like the Magi with a singular purpose? What's so cool across this story is they have one purpose they're aiming towards from when we first meet them to when they exit the scene. They're there to worship the king. That's it. What if worship was not about my preferences and favorite songs, but about coming before the Holy One? What if worship wasn't about me bringing just the table scraps of my thoughts and emotion, which is left over from the week, but rather all of me to worship? Brothers and sisters, what if we worshiped? What would that look like? And I'm not advocating some just like emotional experience, right? But what if I sang with my whole heart instead of as if I'm reading a phone book? What if I came and confessed with tears my sins instead of just looking for grammatical errors? What if I came and longed for the words of grace like a man longing for water in the desert? What if we worshiped, brothers and sisters? How different might this hour on Sundays look? How much more different would the multiple hours outside of these doors looked if we came and worshiped? And what can lead us to that kind of worship? Because the reality is guilt and duty can't. They can't sustain us to actually come and worship. Our hearts can only move because Christ broke our hearts of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. We can only come with all of us to him because he filled the manger with the Godhead. We can only come because God has first given us grace upon grace that we might come. But why should we worship? If that's the how we're able to, why? Because our gospel is a one that says you can never be too far gone. That love reaches to the depths of our pain and meets us with hope, right? You who might have lied so you get that promotion. You who's doing those things and buying things on the internet that you're not telling your spouse about. You whose kids are rebelling in every way. You who had the abortion. You who believed you're unlovable and unable to give love. To you, Christ says, you are my beloved child. To you, God says, I love you so much and I'm going to wrap you in my arms for all of eternity. I'm going to send my son to be crushed for you. That's the love of Christianity. That's the love of the gospel. Why does that cross matter? Because it gives us a love that can handle our shame and our backsliding because Christ bore all of it on the cross. I love in the end of Hebrews, it talks about that Christ went outside the camp bearing the shame for us. We were able to call it sons and daughters of God because Christ came and took all of the sin that we deserved, all of the wrath we deserved, and says, I'm going to be crushed for it and to give you my righteousness. Why does that empty tomb matter? Because in it, Christ sweeps us up into the communion of the Godhead. It's all Jesus, and it's beautiful. That's our hope. That's our gospel. That's our Jesus. Love like that is what will draw us into worship. One of the things I really love about this story, looking at the back part of it, is the progression of the Magi as they actually enter Bethlehem. 
It's a really interesting thing. We see in verse 10, this kind of funny verse, right? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like it feels like one of the things where we're trying to get my kids to write adjectives and they're just like, uh, what's the same word I can say a bunch of times, right? Like that's just like, Matthew, did we run out of words? Like what happened? Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like he is being emphatic showing, listen, they are pumped. The star finally stopped. Like, think about this. They have been chasing this star for probably months at this point. They're just like, man, I'm tired of this cat and that cat and these camels stink. I am done. It's finally stopped. Like, can you imagine like the end of a journey, right? When you finally see home after a long road trip, like, yes, just this relief. It's such a great verse. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. But that's not the climax of the story. The climax of this story is when the door creaks open and they see the king. They see Jesus. And what do they do? We always associate them with just their gifts, but their first move is the most important move. They fall down and worship. Worship is what they have been aiming for since the beginning, and it's what they do here. They don't come to worship the star they've been following. They come to worship the king the star was pointing towards. I love this because there's no pretension around this worship. As I said, these are the idolaters. These, these, they don't have any claim, if you will, on their own unto the family of God. They had one verse and one star, and they came. We don't have to have perfect theology. We don't have to be cleaned up around the edges. We don't have to be nice people. We have to be broken before a Savior. We're called to come and say, the King is whom I'm here to worship. That is where I'm drawn towards this incredible invitation. So my favorite part of our Christmas Eve service this year is that we, we actually closed, closed with the song Joy to the World. So I knew it was coming, but Wit can't read yet and didn't know. And so Wit's standing next to me and he hears this, the band start. He looks at me and he's, I mean, just so excited, just bounce. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, it's my song. I was like, I know. And he goes, verse two. And I'm just like, yes. And right before, when the band's doing the piece between the, uh, the various verses, right before verse two started, I leaned down. I said, whip my son, sing like a lion. That's the joy of our faith. As we are called with a gospel that is beyond compare. We are given hope where there's only hopelessness. And so we, as the people of God, get to sing like lions about it. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who hope, wonder, and worship at the feet of our Savior. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for this gospel, which we could never, ever earn or deserve. We're so thankful for the ways in which you continually draw to yourself by the finished work of Christ, and that is where our hope stands and lies. Lord, thank you for the ways that you love us, even though we are so unlovely, and that your gospel reaches to the depths of our pain and brings forth hope in Jesus. For us in his strong name, amen.